Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The 40th Cog Rand hadn't summoned this weird luminescence, at least not consciously. His armor was doing it all by itself. One moment it glittered, as gold tended to do, and the next it shone. And with that shine came heat, the temperature rising steadily. Rand could feel it, yet it didn't sear him. Not even when the metal layering his body turned molten. What's happening? Jad demanded. The traitor could only shake his head. The grabber's spew covering Rand boiled off as a greenish vapor that dissipated almost instantly. Rand felt strength return to his limbs as the poison's paralytic shackles loosened and then disappeared. He sat up and looked at the Lud and Ludling, both of whom stared back at him, wearing matching expressions of awe. Outside, another crash was followed by a second, desperate scream. Jared! Jad wailed piteously. Stay here, Rand replied. He exploded from the tent, crossing the aisle in a blur, trying to look everywhere at once. The devastation was mind-boggling. At least a quarter of the middle market lay in twisted ruins. Dozens of bodies littered the streets. How many more were there, crushed under the collapsed stores? Rand spotted the Vindicator. It had coiled its long body around one particular shop, its tapered iron snout whirring its way inside to reach something trapped there, or someone. Rand raced toward it, wrapped in a desperate, seething fury. All thoughts of clever strategy and half-baked plans were gone. He was Torque, and Torque was pissed. He slammed into the side of Grabber's head, pipe first, and was gratified to hear the metal plates tear. Then, as the monster roared, Rand flew under its jaw, came up on its other side, and went for the glass-eye guard that Jared had cracked. He drove his pipe through the weakened glass, shattering it and digging deep into the eye socket beneath. Then he fired off a blast of steam that snuffed out the fire. Grabber reared up and thrashed wildly, whipping Rand's body back and forth, trying to dislodge him. So Rand picked his moment, pulled out his arm, and let the monster throw him clear. This time, however, he controlled the throw, steadied himself, regrouped, and attacked again. Grabber spotted him with its one remaining eye and opened its gigantic maw. Rand thought, that's it, dunghole. Open wide. He flew directly into that enormous mouth at speed, missing the teeth as they snapped shut and hurtling himself halfway down the monster's metal throat. With its jaws clamped closed, Grabber's innards were stiflingly dark, so Rand turned on his armor. This torque had no pipe lamp. This torque didn't need one. Instead, his golden armor burst into dazzling life, illuminating everything around him with what Rand would now and forever think of as Sunset's glow. By that glow, Rand could see the pipes, gears, and cables that formed the innards of this monstrosity, and he started slamming them all. His savagery scared him a little. He smashed everything in sight until steam escaped from ruptured pipes and shards of twisted metal tumbled into the belly of the beast like garbage down the drop. Sounds of fury and pain seemed to erupt from its deep throat. Rand kept hitting again and again, until there was nothing left in this part of the monster worth striking, until the hulking mechanism twitched and shuddered in its death throes. He felt Grabber collapse to the market floor. Only then did he stop. His arm ached and his breath came in ragged gasps. From this angle, he could tell the Vindicator had landed on its side. Hovering inside its ruined throat, he looked back to see that the monster's mouth lay slightly open, a jagged vertical slash, exterior light peeking through iron teeth. 
Making his way over there, he wearily pried the mandible open. Then he staggered out, emerging once again into the middle market. Even his armor seemed tired, its magnificent glow dimmed. Surprisingly, there were still lower folk nearby, lots of them. With Grabber's defeat, a dozen more were emerging from their hiding places. Some looked injured, a few badly. One lass, a mother presumably, was holding a lassling's lifeless body in her arms. No one spoke. They simply stared at Rand, stunned by shock and awe. Rand tried to think of something to say. Couldn't. He looked past them, at the ruins of the shop into which Jared had run. The place had been more than knocked over. It had been crushed, torn into scrap metal. Pushing his way through the crowd, Rand hurried to the wreckage, scanning for some signs of life. Jared, he called. Then more loudly, so loudly that his words reverberated off the neighboring walls. Jared! A groan, faint, barely there at all. Desperately, Rand clawed at the ruins, casting aside chunks of debris twice his size. Around him, the lower folk looked on helplessly. As he dug, Rand could feel his heart beating faster, seeming to slam against the inside of his armor. He's solid, he told himself. He has to be solid. He wasn't. Jared's small body was broken. He lay on his back in a pool of his own blood, his limbs crushed. One eye was swelling shut, but the other gazed up at Rand. And incredibly, a smile touched Jared Yancey's lips. Tork, he whispered. Rand dropped to his knees. You're going to be okay, he told the Ludling. I'll get Lucy, and you'll... But he couldn't finish the sentence. Lucy was somewhere in the uppers, herself badly injured. But there were other healers in the lowers. Someone could... We saved you, the Ludling stammered, blood bubbling out from between his lips. Yeah, you did, Rand said, his vision blurring. You sure did, Jared gasped. I had a Lud once who reared me. Dead now. He was like you. Rand felt his heart break. Shakily, he willed back Tork's mask, as he had with Lucy, feeling it roll off his cheeks and forehead like warm oil. Jared's one eye went wide. Papa! he exclaimed, smiling in wonder and delight. Then he died. Rand held his Ludling's hand, sobbing as he never had before, not in all of his remembered life. Then he heard a cry of grief and turned to see Jad with the sweetmeats trader. Is my brother dead? Jad asked. It was a simple question, common in the lowers. This Ludling was eight years old, but he knew perfectly well how precarious life was. So did Rand. But still. Rand nodded. He supposed he should get to his feet, but right now he couldn't seem to make his legs move. Jad's eyes scanned the lifeless face of his twin. Then those same eyes found Rand, who, almost without thinking, opened his arms. Sobbing, the Ludling fell into them. If he was at all surprised that Tork and Rand were the same person, he gave no sign. Maybe he'd been close enough to have seen when Rand revealed himself to Jared. Or maybe he hadn't, but in the wake of his brother's death, it simply didn't matter to him. With Jad clinging to him, Rand met the traitor's eyes. You've been looking out for them. The Lud nodded. Last week, you were ready to have them whipped and then tossed into the keep. The traitor nodded again, miserably this time. But since then, I've rethought some things. Besides, these two bowels rats, he swallowed. They grow on you. Rand wondered if he believed that. Could people really change in just seven days? Then again, who knew better than he how fast a life could turn around? That monster, the trader said. The upper folk sent it? Rand nodded. The trader shuddered. It just appeared, 
slithering down from inside the upper drop. Nobody knew what it was. Most folk went right off and hid, but a few of us were curious enough to approach it. After all, it was just sitting there motionless. Then, as we got close, it spoke. Spoke, Rand said, surprised. Since when did Vindicators speak? It had an upper lord's voice, someone added. What did it say, Rand asked. It was Jad who replied. He'd been clinging to Rand as if to the edge of a precipice, his eyes glued to the lifeless face of his twin brother. He now pulled back, his cheeks wet, but his gaze clear and steady. The monster said, By order of the Proctor and the Commandant of the Keep, it has been deemed necessary to reduce the population of the Lowers. Your sacrifice is for the greater good of the machine. Then it attacked. The traitor told him. You're Rand Roberts, someone called. Are you really Torque? asked someone else. Rand scooped up the Ludling and stood. I really am. He said to the traitor, I have to go back up there. Jad's mama and others need my help. Go, I'll look after the Ludling, said the sweetmeats traitor. No, Jad wailed, clutching Rand's gilded neck more tightly. Stay with me. Gently, but firmly, Rand pried the Ludling loose, holding him at arm's length. Lucy's in trouble. I have to go get her. Then take me with you. I can't. It's going to be dangerous. Doesn't seem much safer down here, the traitor offered. Maybe the LUT had a point. While Grabber was scrap metal, Rat might well be repaired by now, and there was the third Vindicator to consider, the one under the last tarp. If I take you, he said to Jad, you need to promise you'll do what I tell you. Are you going to hurt the upper folk? The Ludling asked. If I have to. Are you going to dead them? Rand said, Torque doesn't dead. Jad's lower lip quivered. I want you to dead them. Nope. They deaded my brother! This time the Ludling screamed, his voice so shrill that it hurt Rand's ears. I can, Rand said calmly. But that's what they do, it's not what I do. Now, do we have a deal? Jad nodded. Show me. So Jad spit into his palm and held it out. Rand reached for it, then remembered himself. Focusing his energies, he caused the gilded armor covering his fingers to recede. The Ludling watched this display, his eyes wide, his pale cheeks glistening with drying tears. Then Rand took Jad's bare hand in his own and shook it, sealing the bargain. Listen to me, he declared to the surrounding crowd. As he did so, he let Torque's armor slide over him again, sealing his hand and face once more behind its impregnable layer of gold. As of today, the machine is at war. The upper folk want to control us by thinning our numbers, a culling that this monster was sent down to begin. This one's destroyed, but they have two others. Jad, Yancey, and I are going to go up there now to face them. We'll fight, someone called. Nearby, the sweetmeats trader nodded fiercely. Rand was starting to like him. I'm hoping it won't come to that, he said. They have soldiers and guns. We don't. Nope, one of the lower lasses declared. But we have you. Rand was glad the mask hid the uncertainty on his face. Aloud, he said, yeah, you do. He turned to the trader. Can you collect Jared's body? Put it somewhere until we get back with Lucy? Then everyone can say a proper goodbye. The Lud replied, I'll take him to my flop. I swear the Ludling won't go into the drop unless you say so. Thanks. Then Rand pulled Jed into his arms and with everyone around them cheering, launched, heading up. The 41st Cog. Their carriage clattered to a stop, its engine uttering one last puff of steam as it shut down. During the short ride, Lucy had gotten visibly weaker, her already pale face turning sallow. 
Ainsley was sickeningly sure that the lower girl was dying. That Baird had killed her after all. We're here, Penelope announced from the opposite bench. Where? Gerard asked. The little boy sat beside Penny, looking small and tired. In answer, Penelope opened the carriage door, letting him see. Oh, Gerard exclaimed. Ainsley looked too. Do you think they'll even let us in? She asked her, did the word friend still apply to either of the Crowley sisters? Penelope replied, I told you, I've made arrangements. Then, stepping out on the street, she added, Are you coming? We need to send the carriage away before the keepers track it. Who's in there? Ainsley asked. You know perfectly well who's in there. Matron Barrett, her acolytes, a worshipper or two, maybe. Though at this time of day, that's unlikely. I need help with Lucy. Penelope sighed. With some effort, the two of them managed to lift the unconscious lower girl out of the carriage. Stay close to me, Ainsley told Gerard. Is Lucy going to be all right? the boy asked. I hope so. Ahead of them, behind an ornate silver gate and manicured garden, towered the cathedral to Jai. There were any number of Jaya's churches. Some were big, some were small. But there was only one cathedral. Here was where all the Pinkerton and Crowley children had been presented to the goddess. Here was where they'd been taught their canticles by the acolytes, stern-faced women who dedicated their lives to Jai's service. Most upper folk families lacked the gold and social clout for their religious care to be managed by the matron and her personal retinue. That was reserved for the highest of the high, as Marie Pinkerton had once sardonically called it. Edith Baird's family line had frequented these hallowed halls. So had Gammon's. All of which, in Ainsley's mind, made this particular sanctuary questionable. Are you sure about this? Ainsley pressed as she and Penelope struggled to half-carry, half-drag Lucy's inert body up the walkway toward the cathedral's gargantuan silver doors. Penelope didn't reply. As they neared the keeper bell, Ainsley shuddered. Most houses and businesses had one of these, though this one was fancier than others. Like everything else in the uppers, the quality of the bell reflected the affluence of its owner, but nearly all were mounted the same way, hung from a metal post bolted to the ground near the front door and all of them shared the same purpose, to summon keepers in case of emergency. As they shuffled past it, Ainsley noted with unease that the pull rope was on Penelope's side of Lucy's limp form, within easy reach. Ainsley couldn't imagine a reason for the girl to signal the keepers now, after having arranged their escape. Even so, she eyed her friend, until the danger passed, though if Penny noticed Ainsley's suspicion, she gave no sign. When they reached the cathedral doors, Penelope used the knocker. It thudded nearly as loud as any keeper bell. Ainsley started despite herself. While they waited, she kept glancing up and down the street, looking for signs of, what, keepers? Anyone? But the area seemed deserted. After the chaos at the plaza, the upper folk had all fled to their homes. That was pretty typical. When in doubt, crawl under your bed. That had been another of her mother's snide axioms. Murray Pinkerton hadn't thought much of her neighbors. At last, the right-hand door swung ponderously open and a face peered out at them. The acolyte wore silver robes and a nervous scowl. I phoned, Penny said. Matron's expecting me. The scowl deepened, but then the woman ushered them inside. Giant's blessings on you, Miss Crowley, and you, Miss Pinkerton. Thank you, Sister Norris, Penelope replied, matching the woman's tone. Not for the first time, it struck Ainsley that her friend would have made a fine, giant acolyte. She possessed just the right mix of apathy and condescension. But she was being unfair. Penny was helping them wasn't she? Who's this? Sister Norris asked, nodding at Lucy. A friend, Ainsley said. She's hurt. She's a lower girl. 
Ainsley bristled, a knee-jerk reaction. And that matters how. Sister Norris looked like she'd bitten into something sour. It doesn't. Follow me. She's heavy, Ainsley exclaimed. We could really use some help. Sister Norris paused, her sour face going even sourer. Ainsley's anger flared. Take her feet. Excuse me? Take her feet and help us carry her someplace where we can lay her down, Ainsley said, putting every last ounce of August Pinkerton's daughter behind the words. Do it. Now. She felt Gerard huddle closer to her. One didn't speak that way to acolytes. Sister Norris's scowl further deepened. Then, a little to Ainsley's surprise, the woman picked up Lucy's feet. This way, she said. As they moved deeper into the cathedral, the vestibule gave way to the much larger nave with its magnificent high ceiling and huge glass skylights, which flooded the cavernous space with natural sunshine. The contrast with the big room atop the keep wasn't lost on Ainsley. Darkness and light. Statues filled niches along both walls. All were fashioned of gleaming silver, the goddess's patron metal, and depicted Jai in her various aspects, teacher, warrior, mother, healer, and queen. All different, yet all parts of the same. Jaiism was not polytheistic, but monotheistic, with caveats. If you were pregnant, you prayed to the mother Jai. If you were sick, you prayed to the healer Jai. Keepers, Ainsley knew, favored the warrior goddess. She wondered who Edith Baird prayed to. Penelope! Matron Barrett approached along the central aisle with four more grim-faced acolytes flanking her. The undisputed head of the Jaiist order. Barrett had held her lifetime appointment for twenty years. Nearing sixty, she cut an impressive figure in her adorned silver gown and headdress, a powerful contrast to her smooth, dark complexion and vivid brown eyes. The matron snapped her fingers, and the acolytes took charge of Lucy, spiriting her off toward the left-hand transept. Ainsley looked after the lower girl, faintly surprised by the depth of her dread. "'Thank you, matron,' Penny said, curtsying. Ainsley followed suit. "'Yes, thank you.' Standing beside her, Gerard remembered his manners and bowed. Ainsley was proud of him for that. "'You're welcome,' Matron Barrett said genially. "'Tell me about the lower girl.' "'Lucy Stamper,' Ainsley replied. "'She's a friend.' Matron Barrett regarded her knowingly. "'She's also a fugitive. So are you. That's why you've come.' "'Eventually they'll find us here,' Penelope said. "'Who will, child?' "'The keepers,' replied Ainsley. "'Commandant Gammon.' "'The commandant knows better than to invade my church. "'You're safe inside these walls.' But, the woman raised a warning finger, I need to understand why you deserve sanctuary, and if the reasons seem unworthy, I will put you out on the street. But then, smiling at Gerard, she added, All but this little lord, anyway. Ainsley nodded. I understand, matron. Good. Start talking. Excuse me? Make your case, Miss Pinkerton. Why should the goddess offer you sanctuary? Ainsley considered. So much had happened. So much had been lost. But how much of it did she dare share with Barrett? Ainsley's mother had respected the matron, though in truth Marie Pinkerton hadn't been particularly religious. Throughout Ainsley's childhood, visits here were matters of social necessity, not faith. One had to be seen in the right places when one was a Pinkerton. For the first time, Ainsley wished she had been more of a believer. It might have made this easier. She started talking, beginning with that day on the lift platform down in the middle market when Torque had suddenly appeared before her and called her by name. Then she described her decision to discover the truth of the machine and the trouble that doing so brought once she'd teamed up with Lucy and Rand. The telling was hard, and it drained what little strength she had left. But it was also therapeutic, even cathartic. 
She'd just about finished when Sister Norris returned from the direction of the left-hand transept, her expression grave. How's Lucy? Ainsley asked urgently. Sister Norris shook her head. There is nothing to be done. That lower girl will soon be in the arms of Jai. The 42nd Cog They all went to see Lucy. A blanket had been spread across a bench at the far end of the transept. Atop it, the lower girl lay, limp as a rag doll and deathly pale. Still unconscious, her chest rose and fell in a shallow, weak rhythm. Matron Barrett felt for a pulse. Thin, she reported sadly. Ainsley took Lucy's hand. It was ice cold. She needs a physician. Even if we could get one here in time, the matron replied. He'd report you both. Ainsley glanced at Gerard, who stood nearby wearing a bleak expression. What was all this doing to him? Blood bubbled up from between Lucy's lips, dribbling down her chin. A small pool of it had gathered at the hollow of her throat. Almost without thinking, Ainsley dipped her finger into it. What are you doing? One of the acolytes demanded. I don't know. She reached across the lower girl's motionless body and drew a vertical line along the wall. Child, Matron Barrett whispered. Ainsley ignored her and finished the mark. Then she dipped her finger in Lucy's blood again and drew the next one, working from memory. Twice she'd watched Lucy make these symbols, and twice they'd worked. Around her the Gaius became increasingly agitated. By the time Ainsley had started the last rune, she felt Matron's hand on her shoulder. That's enough, Miss Pinkerton. But before Ainsley could respond, Penelope stepped forward. Let her do it, she said in her hardest, most penny-like tone. This works. I've seen it. It's heresy, Sister Norris declared. The others nodded. Ainsley finished the word, if that was what it was. But she knew it wasn't enough. She had to retrace it, again and again, just as Lucy had. This is glamour, Matron Barrett replied to Penelope. I won't have it in Jai's house. The woman was accustomed to being obeyed and probably expected Penelope to cower and retreat from the confrontation. Not a chance, Ainsley thought. Without this, Penelope insisted, she'll die. Better that, the matron replied grimly, than have her spirit banished into darkness. You're blind, Penelope exclaimed with surprising anger. Every bit as blind as I was. What are you talking about? Sister Norris demanded. Ainsley kept working, not daring to take her eyes off her task. She didn't know if doing so would break the spell, but she wouldn't risk it. Penelope went on. Ainsley's been trying to tell me how horrible everything is, how we live our lives on the backs of the lower folk. I thought she was naive, maybe even a hypocrite, but she's proved me wrong. That lower girl there has more integrity and simple courage than anyone I've ever met. And the other one, the boy she's with, well, he goes way beyond even her. What boy? the matron demanded. Torque, Gerard replied. They all turned toward him. Hush, child, Sister Norris snapped. No, the matron said. Let him speak. So Gerard spoke. They were about to hang Lucy and my sister, and Torque flew out of the drop and swooped down and saved them. That's ridiculous, one of the acolytes snapped. I saw it too, said Penelope. Torque's a myth, Sister Norris insisted. Without turning, Ainsley replied, No, he's a legend. The other Torque, the one my father concocted to keep the lower folk in line, he was the myth, a myth based on a legend. And where is this legend now? Matron Barrett asked, her words dripping with skepticism. It was Gerard who answered first. He went down the drop to save the lower folk from the monster, 
This story just gets more and more outlandish, another acolyte remarked. Ainsley looked down at Lucy, hoping to see the lower girl stir. When she didn't, when she didn't, Ainsley steeled herself and kept tracing the runes, speaking as she did so. Gammon, with the proctor's blessing, constructed three mechanical monsters that he intends to use to cull the population of the lowers. I've personally seen two of them. One of them has gone down the drop to the middle market with orders to kill everyone it finds. Then, after a pause, she added, and Torque went after it. Why are we listening to this, matron? Sister Norris demanded. Even if it's somehow true, they're just lower folk. Finally, said a voice, some common sense. Ainsley, halfway through her sixth retracing, felt her stomach clench. Turning, she saw Julia Crowley march down the transept toward them with Keeper Percy on her arm. Percy's face remained bandaged. In his hand, he gripped a pistol. Step away from the bells, Rat, Miss Pinkerton, he ordered. Ainsley kept tracing. Before anyone could react, Percy rushed forward and grabbed Ainsley's arm and yanked her away from the bench. Falling on her buttocks, Ainsley looked at Lucy. The lower girl hadn't moved. Ainsley wondered if she'd done any good at all. What are you doing here? Penelope asked her sister, her words edged with outrage and maybe a little shame, as if she'd been caught with her hand in the cookie jar. I could ask you the same thing, Julia replied coldly. You betrayed me, Ainsley snapped, climbing to her feet as Gerard ran to her. You betrayed us. You're the betrayer, the upper girl replied. You brought these lower folk into our house. You turned your back on your family and your people. They killed our father, Ainsley screamed so loudly that Gerard sobbed. And then you gave us to Gammon. I did that, Percy remarked offhandedly. All Miss Julia did was phone me and warn me to expect you at the market lifts. We're going to get married, Julia announced, her face lighting up with girlish joy. What are you babbling about? Penelope demanded. Percy and I have been seeing each other secretly for a week now. I know father and mother wouldn't like it, one of their daughters marrying a keeper, especially after such a whirlwind romance. But I knew if I could make Percy new a hero, they'd come around. You betrayed our friend because you've got a crush on this piece of dung. Percy colored and raised his weapon. Penelope glared at him. I'm no lower girl. Shoot me, and let's see how our parents react then. Not my sister, Julia told him quickly. The young keeper read the outrage on everyone's faces, the giants included. A weapon had been drawn within sight of the goddess. Unthinkable. Matron Barrett came forward. Put that down, keeper. You won't use it. Not in here. I will if I have to, matron, Percy replied defiantly. With his free hand, he touched his bandaged face. See this? That piece of filth lying there did this to me, and she's going to pay for it. Torque's not going to stop me this time. Torque? Sister Norris echoed, sounding mystified. He's real? Oh, he's real, and the Commandant has a plan for dealing with him along with the rest of the criminal element in the lowers. Right now, he's not my problem. After these two escaped the noose, I phoned Miss Julia to see if she had any ideas where they might have gone. After all, they're recognizable fugitives. There couldn't be too many hiding places. Julia nodded emphatically. I went to Penny, only to have Catherine tell me that she'd left without explanation in the carriage. It wasn't hard to figure out what that meant, or where you might take them. I know how pious you are. But don't worry. Percy only wants Ainsley and the lower girl. You and I will go home and forget all about this. I wouldn't want anything to happen to my maid of honor. Then she smiled. Actually smiled. Penelope recoiled as though struck. Are you crazy? Ainsley's been our friend all our lives, and you're ready to see her hang? Just so you can marry this boy soldier? Julia's face hardened. 
Ainsley made her choices. And I'd do it again, Ainsley said. Shut up, Percy snapped. Enough, Matron Barrett pronounced. Keeper, you will lower that weapon, or I promise you you'll get married in a jail cell. I'm sorry, Matron. Commandant Gammon gave orders that the fugitives were to be brought in alive or dead. As I see things, I'll take Miss Pinkerton into custody. But as for this bowels rat... To Ainsley's horror, he pressed the gun barrel against Lucy's temple. No! she screamed. Lucy Stamper's small hand, which had hung loosely over the edge of the bench, came up and punched the keeper in the groin. Then, as Percy gasped in surprise and pain, her other hand snatched the pistol out of his grasp. The keeper doubled over. As he did, Lucy hit his wounded cheek with the butt of the pistol, dropping him to the transept floor. Percy! Julia wailed. Who drew these? Lucy demanded, sitting up and pointing at the bloody runes on the wall. At first, no one replied. The Gaius were staring at the lower girl as if unable to believe their eyes. Finally, Penelope said, Ainsley did. That's solid, upper lass? Ainsley nodded. For the first time since they'd met, Lucy offered her a genuine smile. I'm impressed. Then the lower girl hopped to her feet and pointed the pistol at Keeper Percy's head. Julia rushed forward. Leave him alone, you animal! Lucy leveled the gun at her. What did you call me? Julia froze. Her lower lip trembled. You can't! Try me. But she didn't pull the trigger. Lucy, Ainsley said. Rand's in the middle market fighting grabber. I heard that part. The lower girl looked around. Where are we? The most venerated cathedral to Jai, one of the acolytes said, as if speaking to a demon instead of a person. And you have no place here. Finally, somebody says something I agree with. This flop is huge. All this space just for praying. Nobody replied to that. Are you... Solid? Ainsley asked. Never better. You did it right. I just did what you did to Rand. Takes most folks years of practice before they can heal, but you managed it on your first try. Lucy laughed. Root magic in the most venerated cathedral to Jai. I love it. Blasphemy, Sister Norris exclaimed. Why? Lucy asked. You've got your gods. We have ours. Root is the dark spirit of heresy. The acolyte shot back. There is no god but Jai. Lucy pointed at the rune-covered wall. Then how do you explain that? The acolyte's face reddened. That's what I thought, Lucy said. She handed the pistol to Ainsley, casually, as though handing around firearms were second nature to her. What do you want me to do with this? Ainsley asked anxiously. Pointed at the lud. I'm going to shackle him, and I don't want him getting any ideas. And if he did get an idea, then what? Did Lucy expect her to shoot him? Nevertheless, Ainsley did as asked, feeling badly out of her depth. Lucy's attack hadn't knocked Percy out, but it had hurt him. So before he had a chance to recover, the lower girl quickly used the keeper's own shackles to fasten his wrist to one of the bench legs. Then she searched his person for the key and pocketed it. Finally, she straightened and took back the pistol. Thanks. You're welcome, Ainsley replied. Now what? Lucy faced Matron Barrett. You're in charge of this cathedral? The matron nodded toward the gun. I would think whoever's holding that is in charge. The lower girl grinned. I like you. Then she deposited the pistol in one of the pockets of her maid's dress. Better? Matron Barrett nodded. Lucy looked at Penelope. Why are we here? We had to go somewhere. Every keeper in the uppers is searching for you. Sanctuary, Ainsley added. Lucy regarded the Gaius. You offer sanctuary to Bal's rats? Not happily, Sister Norris replied. But you do it unhappily? Yes, Matron Barrett said firmly. I've seen and heard enough to understand the injustice at work here. I thereby offer you sanctuary in the goddess's name. 
Julia declared. You're all horrible. Everyone faced the girl who backed away from them as if they transformed into monsters. Penny, Ainsley, what's happened to you? She pointed an accusing finger at Lucy. That's not a person, don't you see that? That's an animal, no better than a factory sheep. Penny, you of all people, isn't that what you've always said? Penelope replied, I was wrong. No, you weren't. Julia glared daggers at the lower girl. And you, you're ruining everything. Then she fled the transept, moving as quickly as her tailored dress and high-end boots would allow. Now her, Lucy remarked, I don't like. Let her go, Penelope begged. She's throwing another one of her tantrums, like when father wouldn't let her buy that personal carriage last year. Ainsley stared at her. Penny, she almost got me killed. I know, but she's Julia. She doesn't think. She just acts on what she feels. Where's she going? Lucy asked. Home, Penelope replied miserably, probably to cry to her father and mother about how we've ruined her life. Ainsley nearly offered up another rebuke, but the words died when she read Penelope's heartbroken expression. Penny, she began. I'm sorry. Then she stopped and whirled around toward the mouth of the transept, toward the cathedral proper, toward the way Julia had run. The keeper bell, she cried. Lucy and Ainsley fight for their lives against a vicious vindicator attack in the next episode of Torque by Ty Drago. If you just can't stand the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening.